Section thirty two of the Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Scott Jones. The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume One, by Anonymous. Translated by Dr. Jonathan Scott. Section 32 The History of Ghanim, Son of Abu Ayyub, and known by the surname of Love's Slave. There was formerly at Damascus a merchant, who had by care and industry acquired great wealth, on which he lived in a very honorable manner. His name was Abu Ayyub, and he had one son and a daughter. The son was called Ghanim, but afterwards surnamed Love's Slave. His person was graceful, and the excellent qualities of his mind had been improved by able masters. The daughter's name was Alcolum, signifying ravisher of hearts, because her beauty was so perfect that whoever saw her could not avoid loving her. Abu Ayyub died, and left immense riches. A hundred loads of brocades and other silks that lay in his warehouse were the least part. The loads were ready made up, and on every bale was written in large characters, For Baghdad. Muhammad, the son of Solomon, surnamed Zinebi, reigned at that time in Damascus, the capital of Syria. His kinsman, Harun al-Rashid, had bestowed that kingdom on him as his tributary. Soon after the death of Abu Ayyub, Ghanim conversed with his mother about their domestic affairs, and concerning the loads of merchandise in the warehouse, asked her the meaning of what was written upon each bale. "'My son,' answered his mother, "'your father used to travel sometimes into one province, and sometimes into another, and it was customary with him, before he set out, to write the name of the city he designed to repair to on every bale.' He had provided all things to take a journey to Baghdad, and was on the point of setting out, when death. She had not the power to finish. The lively remembrance of the loss of her husband would not permit her to say more, and drew from her a shower of tears. Ghanim could not see his mother so sensibly affected, without being equally so himself. They continued some time silent, but at length he recovered himself, and as soon as he found his mother calm enough to listen to him, said, Since my father designed these goods for Baghdad, I will prepare myself to perform that journey, and I think it will be proper for me to hasten my departure, for fear those commodities should perish, or that we should lose the opportunity of selling them to the best advantage. Abu Ayyub's widow, who tenderly loved her son, was much concerned at this resolution, and replied, my dear child, I cannot but commend you for designing to follow your father's example, but consider that you are too young, inexperienced, and unaccustomed to the fatigue of travelling. Besides, can you think of leaving me, and adding to that sorrow with which I am already oppressed? Is it not better to sell those goods to the merchants of Damascus, and take up with a moderate profit, than expose yourself to the danger of perishing? It was in vain for her to oppose Ghanim's resolution by the strongest arguments. They had no weight with him. An inclination to travel, and to accomplish himself by a thorough knowledge of the world, urged him to set out 
and prevailed over all his mother's remonstrances, her entreaties, and even her tears. He went to the market, where slaves were sold, and bought such as were able-bodied, hired a hundred camels, and having provided all other necessaries, entered upon his journey with five or six merchants of Damascus, who were going to trade at Baghdad. Those merchants, attended by their slaves, and accompanied by several other travellers, made up such a considerable caravan that they had nothing to fear from the Bedouin Arabs, who made it their only profession to range the country, and attack and plunder the caravans when they are not strong enough to repulse them. They had no other difficulty to encounter than the usual fatigues of a long journey, which were easily forgotten when they came in sight of the city of Baghdad, where they arrived in safety. They alighted at the most magnificent and most frequented khan in the city, but Ghanim chose to be lodged conveniently and by himself. He only left his goods there in a warehouse for their greater security, and hired a spacious house in the neighborhood, richly furnished, having a garden which was very delightful on account of its many waterworks and shady groves. Some days after this young merchant had been settled in his house, and perfectly recovered from the fatigue of his journey, he dressed himself richly, and repaired to the public place where the merchants met to transact business. A slave followed him, carrying a parcel of fine stuffs and silks. The merchants received Ghanim very courteously, and their syndic, or chief, to whom he first made application, bought all his parcel at the price set down in the ticket annexed to every piece of stuff. Ghanim continued his trade so successfully that he every day sold all the goods he exposed. He had but one bale left which he had caused to be carried from the warehouse to his own house. He then went to the public rendezvous, where he found all the shops shut. This seemed somewhat extraordinary to him, and having asked the cause, he was told that one of the first merchants, whom he knew, was dead, and that all his brother traders were gone to his funeral. Ghanim inquired for the mosque where prayer was to be said, and whence the body was to be conducted to the grave and having been informed, sent back his slave with the goods, and walked towards the mosque. He got thither before the prayers were ended, which were said in a hall hung with black satin. The corpse was taken up, and followed by the kindred, the merchants, and Ghanim, to the place of burial, which was at some distance without the city. It was a stone structure, in form of a dome, purposely built to receive the bodies of all the family of the deceased, and being very small, they had pitched tents around, that all the company might be sheltered during the ceremony. The monument was opened, and the corpse laid in it, after which it was shut up. Then the imam, and other ministers of the mosque, sat down in a ring on carpets, in the largest tent, and recited the rest of the prayers. They also read the Fatih, or introductory chapter of the Quran, appointed for the burial of the dead. The kindred and merchants sat round, in the same manner, behind the ministers. It was near night before all was ended. Ghanim, who had not expected such a long ceremony, began to be uneasy, and the more so when he saw meat served up, in memory of the deceased, according to the custom of the Mohammedans. He was also told that the tents had been set up not only against the heat of the sun, but also against the evening dew, because they should not return to the city before the next morning. These words perplexed Ghanim. I am a stranger, 
said he to himself, and have the reputation of being a rich merchant. Thieves may take the opportunity of my absence and rob my house. My slaves may be tempted by so favorable an opportunity. They may run away with all the gold I have received for my goods, and whither shall I go to look for them? Full of these thoughts, he ate a few mouthfuls hastily, and slipped away from the company. He made all possible haste. But, as it often happens that the more a man hurries, the less he advances, he went astray in the dark, so that it was near midnight when he came to the city gate, which, to add to his misfortune, was shut. This was a fresh affliction to him, and he was obliged to look for some convenient place in which to pass the rest of the night, till the gate was opened. He went into a burial place, so spacious, that it had reached from the city to the very place he had left. He advanced to some high walls, which enclosed a small field, being the mausoleum of a family, and in which there was a palm-tree. Ganem, finding that the burial-place where the palm-tree grew was open, went into it and shut the door after him. He lay down on the grass and tried to sleep, but his uneasiness at being absent from home would not permit him. He got up, and after having passed before the door several times, opened it, without knowing why, and immediately perceived at a distance a light, which seemed to come towards him. He was startled at the sight, closed the door, which had nothing to secure it but a latch, and got up as fast as he could to the top of the palm-tree, looking upon that as the safest retreat under his present apprehensions. No sooner was he up than by the help of the light which had alarmed him he plainly perceived three men, whom, by their habit, he knew to be slaves, enter into the burial-place. One of them advanced with a lantern, and the two others followed him, loaded with a chest, between five and six feet long, which they carried on their shoulders. They set it down, and then one of the three slaves said to his comrades, "'Brethren, if you will be advised by me, we will leave the chest here, and return to the city.' "'No, no,' replied another, "'that would not be executing our mistress's orders. We may have cause to repent not doing as we were commanded.' Let us bury the chest, since we are enjoined so to do. The two other slaves complied. They began to break ground with the tools they had brought for that purpose. When they had made a deep trench, they put the chest into it, and covered it with the earth they had taken out, and then departed. Ganem, who from the top of the palm-tree had heard every word the slaves had spoken, could not tell what to think of the adventure. He concluded that the chest must contain something of value, and that the person to whom it belonged had some particular reason for causing it to be buried in the cemetery. He resolved immediately to satisfy his curiosity, came down from the palm-tree, the departure of the slaves having dissipated his fear, and fell to work upon the pit, plying his hands and feet so well that in a short time he uncovered the chest, but found it secured by a padlock. This new obstacle to the satisfying of his curiosity was no small mortification to him, yet he was not discouraged, but the day beginning then to appear, he saw several great stones about the burial-place. He picked out one, with which he easily knocked off the padlock, and then with much impatience opened the chest. Ganem was strangely surprised, when instead of money he discovered a young lady of incomparable beauty. Her fresh and rosy complexion, and her gentle, regular breathing satisfied him that she was alive, 
but he could not conceive why, if she were only asleep, that she had not awaked at the noise he made in forcing off the padlock. Her habit was so costly, with bracelets and pendants of diamonds, and a necklace of pearls so large, that he had not the least doubt of her being one of the principal ladies of the court. At the sight of so beautiful an object, not only compassion and natural inclination to relieve persons in danger, but something more powerful, which Ganem could not then account for, prevailed on him to afford the unfortunate beauty all the assistance in his power. He first shut the gate of the burial-place, which the slaves had left open, then, returning, took the lady in his arms, and laid her on the soft earth which he had thrown off the chest. As soon as she was exposed to the air, she sneezed, and, by the motion in turning her head, there came from her mouth a liquor, with which her stomach seemed to have been loaded. Then, opening and rubbing her eyes, she, with such a voice as charmed Ganem, whom she did not see, cried out, Zohara Boston, Shiher Almerion, Kasabo Sukar, Nurin Nihar, Nagmato Sohi, Nansbetos Zaman, why do you not answer? Where are you? These were the names of six female slaves that used to wait on her. She called them, and wondered that nobody answered. But at length, looking about, and perceiving she was in a burial-place, was seized with fear. What? cried she, much louder than before. Are the dead raised? Is the day of judgment come? What a wonderful change is this from evening to morning! Ganem did not think fit to leave the lady any longer in her perplexity but presented himself before her with all possible respect, and in the most courteous manner. Madam, said he, I am not able to express my joy of having happened to be here to do you the service I have, and to offer you all the assistance you may need under your present circumstances. In order to persuade the lady to repose confidence in him, he, in the first place, told her who he was, and what accident had brought him to that place. Next he acquainted her with the coming of the three slaves, and how they had buried the chest. The lady who had covered her face with her veil as soon as Ganemon appeared was extremely sensible of the obligations she owed him. "'I return thanks to God,' said she, "'for having sent so worthy a person as you as to deliver me from death. But since you have begun so charitable a work, I conjure you not to leave it imperfect. Let me beg of you to go into the city.' and provide a muleteer to come with this mule, and carry me to your house in this chest. For, should I go with you on foot, my dress being different from that of the city ladies, someone might take notice of it, and follow me, which it highly concerns me to prevent. When I shall be in your house, I will give you an account of myself, and, in the meantime, be assured that you have not obliged an ungrateful person." Before the young merchant left the lady, he drew the chest out of the pit, which he filled up with earth, laid her again in the chest, and shut it in such a manner that it did not look as if the padlock had been forced off. But for fear of stifling her, he did not put it quite close, leaving room for the admittance of air. Going out of the burial-place, he drew the door after him, and the city gate being then open, soon found what he sought. He returned with speed to the burial-place, and helped the muleteer to lay the chest across his mule, telling him to remove all cause of suspicion that he came to that place the night before with another muleteer, 
who, being in haste to return home, had laid down the chest where he saw it. Ganem, who since his arrival at Baghdad had minded nothing but business, was still unacquainted with the power of love, and now felt its first attacks. It had not been in his power to look upon the young lady without being dazzled, and the uneasiness he felt at following the muleteer at a distance, and the fear lest any accident might happen by the way that should deprive him of his conquest, taught him to unravel his thoughts. He was more than usually delighted when, being arrived safe at home, he saw the chest unloaded, he dismissed the muleteer, and having caused a slave to shut the door of his house, opened the chest, helped the lady out, gave her his hand, and conducted her to his apartment, lamenting how much she must have endured in such close confinement. "'If I have suffered,' said she, "'I have satisfaction sufficient in what you have done for me, and in the pleasure of seeing myself out of danger.' Though Ganem's apartment was very richly furnished, the lady did not so much regard its appearance as she did the handsome presence and engaging mien of her deliverer, whose politeness and obliging behavior heightened her gratitude. She sat down on a sofa, and to give the merchant to understand how sensible she was of the service done her, took off her veil. Ganem, on his part, was sensible of the favor so lovely a lady did in uncovering her face to him or rather felt he had already a most violent passion for her. Whatever obligations she owed him, he thought himself more than requited by so singular a favor. The lady dived into Ganem's thoughts, yet was not at all alarmed, because he appeared very respectful. He, judging she might have occasion to eat, and not willing to trust any but himself with the care of entertaining so charming a guest, went out with a slave to an eating-house, to give directions for an entertainment. From thence he went to a fruiterer, where he chose the finest and best fruit, buying also the choicest wine, and the same bread that was eaten at the caliph's table. As soon as he returned home, he, with his own hands, made a pyramid of the fruit he had bought, and serving it up himself to the lady in a large dish of the finest china-ware. Madam, said he, be pleased to make choice of some of this fruit, while a more solid entertainment, and more worthy yourself, is preparing. He would have continued standing before her, but she declared she would not touch anything, unless he sat down and ate with her. He obeyed, and when they had eaten a little, Ganem observing that the lady's veil, which she laid down by her on a sofa, was embroidered along the edge with golden letters, begged her permission to look at the embroidery. The lady immediately took up the veil and delivered it to him, asking him whether he could read. Madam, replied he with a modest air, a merchant would be ill-qualified to manage his business if he could not at least read and write. Well, then, said she, read the words which are embroidered on that veil, which gives me an opportunity of telling you my story. Ganem took the veil, and read these words. I am yours, and you are mine, thou descendant from the prophet's uncle. That descendant from the prophet's uncle was the caliph, Harun al-Rushid, who then reigned, and was descended from Abbas, Muhammad's uncle. When Ghanim perceived these words, Alas, madam, said he, in a melancholy tone, I have just saved your life, and this writing is my death. I do not comprehend all the mystery, but it convinces me that I am the most unfortunate of men. Pardon, madam, the liberty I take, but it was impossible for me to see you without giving you my heart. 
you are not ignorant yourself that it was not in my power to refuse it you, and that makes my presumption excusable. I propose to myself to touch your heart by my respectful behavior, my care, my assiduity, my submission, my constancy, and no sooner have I formed the flattering design than I am robbed of all my hopes. I cannot long survive so great a misfortune. But, be that as it will, I shall have the satisfaction of dying entirely yours. Proceed, madam, I conjure you, and give me full information of my unhappy fate. He could not utter those words without letting fall some tears. The lady was moved, but was so far from being displeased at the declaration he made that she felt a secret joy, for her heart began to yield. However, she concealed her feelings, and as if she had not regarded what Ganem had said. "'I should have been very cautious,' answered she, "'of strewing you my veil, had I thought it would have given you so much uneasiness. But I do not perceive that what I have to say to you can make your condition so deplorable as you imagine.' "'You must understand,' proceeded she, "'that in order to acquaint you with my story, that my name is Fetna, which signifies disturbance.' which was given me at my birth, because it was judged that the sight of me would one day occasion many calamities. Of this you cannot be ignorant, since there is nobody in Baghdad but knows that the Caliph, my sovereign lord, and yours, has a favorite so called. I was carried into his palace in my tenderest years, and I have been brought up with all the care that is usually taken with such persons of my sex as are destined to reside there. I made no little progress in all they took the pains to teach me, and that, with some share of beauty, gained me the affection of the caliph, who allotted me a particular apartment adjoining to his own. That prince was not satisfied with such a mark of distinction. He appointed twenty women to wait on me, and as many eunuchs, and ever since he has made me such considerable presents that I saw myself richer than any queen in the world. You may judge by what I have said, that Zubaydah, the caliph's wife and kinswoman, could not but be jealous of my happiness. Though Harun has all the regard imaginable for her, she has taken every possible opportunity to ruin me. Hitherto I had secured myself against all her snares, but at length I fell under the last effort of her jealousy, and, had it not been for you, must now have been exposed to inevitable death. I question not, but she had corrupted one of my slaves, who last night, in some lemonade, gave me a drug which causes such a dead sleep that it is easy to dispose of those who have taken it, for that sleep is so profound that nothing can dispel it for the space of seven or eight hours. I have the more reason to judge so, because naturally I am a very bad sleeper, and apt to wake at the least noise. Zubaydah the better to put her design in execution, has availed herself of the absence of the caliph, who went lately to put himself at the head of his troops, to chastise some neighboring kings, who have formed a league of rebellion. Were it not for this opportunity, my rival, outrageous as she is, durst not have presumed to attempt anything against my life. I know not what she will do to conceal this action from the caliph, but you see it highly concerns me that you should keep my secret." My life depends on it. I shall be safe in your house, as long as the caliph is from Baghdad. It concerns you to keep my adventure private, for should Zubaydah know the obligation I owe you, 
she would punish you for having saved me. When the caliph returns, I shall not need to be so much upon my guard. I shall find means to acquaint him with all that has happened, and I am fully persuaded he will be more earnest than myself to requite a service which restores me to his love. As soon as Harun al-Rashid's beautiful favorite had done speaking, Ghanim said, Madam, I return you a thousand thanks for having given me the information I took the liberty to desire of you, and I beg of you to believe that you are here in safety. The sentiments you have inspired are a pledge of my secrecy. As for my slaves, they may perhaps fail of the fidelity they owe me, should they know by what accident and in what place I had the happiness to find you. I dare assure you, however, that they will not have the curiosity to inquire. It is so natural for young men to purchase beautiful slaves, that it will be no way surprising to them to see you here, believing you to be one, and that I have bought you. They will also conclude that I have some particular reason for bringing you home, as they saw I did. Set your heart, therefore, at rest as to that point, and remain satisfied that you shall be served with all the respect that is due to the favorite of so great a monarch as our sovereign, the Caliph. But great as he is, give me leave, madam, to declare that nothing can make me recall the present I have made you of my heart. I know, and shall never forget, that what belongs to the master is forbidden to the slave, but I loved you before you told me that you were engaged to the Caliph. It is not in my power to overcome a passion which, though now in its infancy, has all the force of a love strengthened by a perfect of situation. I wish your august and most fortunate lover may avenge you of the malice of Zubaydah, by calling you back to him, and when you shall be restored to his wishes, that you may remember the unfortunate Ghanim, who is no less your conquest than the Caliph. Powerful as that prince is, I flatter myself that he will not be able to blot me out of your remembrance. He cannot love you more passionately than I do, and I shall never cease to love you into whatever part of the world I may go to expire, after having lost you. Fetna perceived that Ghanim was under the greatest of afflictions, and his situation affected her. But considering the uneasiness she was likely to bring upon herself, by prosecuting the conversation on that subject, which might insensibly lead her to discover the inclination she felt for him. I perceive, said she, that this conversation gives you too much uneasiness. Let us change the subject, and talk about the infinite obligation I owe you. I can never sufficiently express my gratitude, when I reflect that without your assistance I should never again have beheld the light of the sun. It was happy for them both, that somebody just then knocked at the door. Ghanim went to see who it was, and found it to be one of his slaves come to acquaint him that the entertainment was ready. Ghanim, who by way of precaution would have none of his slaves come into the room where Fetna was, took what was brought, and served it up himself to his beautiful guest, whose soul was ravished to behold what attention he paid her. When they had eaten, Ghanim took away, as he had covered the table and having delivered all things at the door of the apartment to his slaves, Madam, said he to Fetna, you may now perhaps desire to take some rest. I will leave you, and when you have reposed yourself, you shall find me ready to receive your commands. Having thus spoken, he left her, and went to purchase two women slaves. He also bought two parcels, one of fine linen, and the other 
of all such things as were proper to make up a toilet fit for the caliph's favorite having conducted home the two women slaves he presented them to fetnah saying madam a person of your quality cannot be without two waiting-maids at least to serve you be pleased to accept of these fetnah admiring ganem's attention said my lord i perceive you are not one that will do things by halves you add by your courtesy to the obligations i owe you already but i hope i shall not die ungrateful and that heaven will soon place me in a condition to requite all your acts of generosity when the women slaves were withdrawn into a chamber adjoining he sat down on the sofa but at some distance from fetnah in token of respect he then began to discourse of his passion i dare not so much as hope said he to excite the least sensibility in a heart like yours destined for the greatest prince in the world alas it would be a comfort to me in my misfortune if i could but flatter myself that you have not looked upon the excess of my love with indifference my lord answered fetnah alas madam said ganem interrupting her at the word lord this is the second time you have done me the honor to call me lord the presence of the women slaves hindered me the first time from taking notice of it to you in the name of god madam do not give me this title of honor it does not belong to me treat me i beseech you as your slave i am and shall never cease to be so no no replied fetnah interrupting him in her turn i shall be cautious how i treat with such disrespect a man to whom i owe my life i should be ungrateful could i say or do anything that did not become you leave me therefore to follow the dictates of my gratitude and do not require of me that i should misbehave myself towards you in return for the benefits i have received i shall never be guilty of such conduct i am too sensible of your respectful behavior to abuse it and i will not hesitate to own that i do not regard your care with indifference you know the reasons that condemn me to silence ganem was enraptured at this declaration he wept for joy and not being able to find expression significant enough in his own opinion to return fetnah thanks was satisfied with telling her that as she knew what she owed to the caliph he on his part was not ignorant that what belongs to the master is forbidden to the slave night drawing on he rose up to fetch a light which he brought in himself as also a collation they both sat down at table and at first complimented each other on the fruit as they presented it reciprocally the excellence of the wine insensibly drew them both to drink and having drunk two or three glasses they agreed that neither should take another glass without first singing some air ganem sung verses extempore expressive of the vehemence of his passion and fetnah encouraged by his example composed and sung verses relating to her adventure and always containing something which ganem might take in a sense favorable to himself except in this she most exactly observed the fidelity due to the caliph the collation continued till very late and the night was far advanced before they thought of parting ganem then withdrew to another apartment leaving fetnah where she was the women slaves he had bought her coming in to wait upon her 
They lived together in this manner for several days. The young merchant went not abroad, unless upon the utmost consequence, and even for that took the time when the lady was reposing, for he could not prevail upon himself to lose a moment that might be spent in her company. All his thoughts were taken up with his dear Fetna, who on her side gave way to her inclination, confessed she had no less affection for him than he had for her. However, fond as they were of each other, their respect for the caliph kept them within due bounds, which still heightened their passion. Whilst Fetna, thus snatched from the jaws of death, passed her time so agreeably with Zanim, Zabida was not without some apprehensions in the palace of Harun al-Rashid. No sooner had the three slaves, entrusted with the execution of her revenge, carried away the chest, without knowing what it contained, or so much as the least curiosity to inquire, being used to pay a blind obedience to her commands, than she was seized with a tormenting uneasiness. A thousand perplexing thoughts disturbed her rest. Sleep fled from her eyes, and she spent the night in contriving how to conceal her crime. "'My consort,' said she, "'loves Fetna more than ever he did any of his favorites. What shall I say to him at his return, when he inquires of me after her?' Many contrivances occurred to her, but none were satisfactory. Still she met with difficulties, and knew not where to fix. There lived with her a lady advanced in years, who had bred her up from her infancy. As soon as it was day, she sent for her, and having entrusted her with the secret, said, My good mother, you have always assisted me with your advice. If ever I stood in need of it, it is now, when the business before you is to still my thoughts, distracted by mortal anxiety, and to show me some way to satisfy the caliph. My dear mistress, replied the old lady, it had been much better not to have run yourself into the difficulties you labor under. But since the thing is done, the best consolation is to think no more of it. All that must now be thought of is how to deceive the commander of the believers, and I am of the opinion that you should immediately cause a wooden image resembling a dead body to be carved. We will shroud it up in linen, and when shut up in a coffin it shall be buried in some part of the palace. You shall then immediately cause a marble mausoleum to be built in the form of a dome over the burial-place, and erect a tomb, which shall be covered with embroidered cloth, and set about with great candlesticks and large wax tapers. There is another thing, added the old lady, which ought not to be forgotten. You must put on mourning, and cause the same to be done by your own and Fetna's women, your eunuchs, and all the officers of the palace. When the caliph returns and sees you all and the palace in mourning, he will not fail to ask the occasion of it. You will then have an opportunity of insinuating yourself into his favor, by saying, It was out of respect to him that you paid the last honors to Fetna, snatched away by sudden death. You may tell him you have caused a mausoleum to be built, and, in short, that you have paid all the last honors to his favorite, as he would have done himself had he been present. His passion for her being extraordinary, he will certainly go to shed tears upon her grave, and perhaps, added the old woman, he will not believe she is really dead. He may possibly suspect you have turned her out of the palace through jealousy, and look upon all the morning as artifice to deceive him, and prevent his making inquiries after her. 
it is likely he will cause the coffin to be taken up and opened, and it is certain he will be convinced of her death as soon as he shall see the figure of a dead body buried. He will be pleased with all you shall have done, and express his gratitude. As for the wooden image, I will myself undertake to have it cut by a carver in the city, who shall not know the purpose for which it is designed. As for your part, madam, order Fetna's women, who yesterday gave her the lemonade, to give out among her companions that she has just found her mistress dead in her bed, and in order that they may only think of lamenting without offering to go into her chamber, let her add she has already acquainted you with the circumstance, and that you have ordered Mesrur to cause her to be buried. End of section 32 Recording by John Scott Jones Milwaukee, Wisconsin, June 24, 2007